1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. It's very
0: difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living
1: being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
0: Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Keith Phipps and
1: Tosh Robinson.
0: Producer Genevieve Kosky is behind the boards this week, auto-tuning us. On the first half of this episode, we discuss The Exterminating Angel, Louis Buniel's anarchic satire of societal elites trapped at an opulent dinner party. For the second half of the episode, we're staying inside for Mother, Darren Aronofsky's allegorical horror comedy What's It, which also takes place entirely on a single estate where many arrive and no one leaves. No one in Mother has a name, but it's safe to say that Jennifer Lawrence stars as the title character, a woman who's been working hard to restore an old home back to its original glory. Javier Bardem plays her much older husband, an author who's experiencing writer's block and is constantly searching for inspiration. In the meantime, Bardem invites a wayward stranger, played by Ed Harris, to stay overnight, and he's soon joined by his wife, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and later their two adult sons. As the number of people who descend on this isolated estate start to swell, a number of bizarre and frightening incidents leave Lawrence feeling unnerved, particularly when she discovers she's pregnant. What happens next is increasingly inexplicable, so we'll stop there. We'll get into our reactions to Mother, as well as how it compares to the exterminating angel, after the break.
1: It scared me.
2: Please, come in. Hello.
1: Hello. He's a stranger. We're just going to let him sleep in our house. Hello. Did you know he had a wife? I want to thank you for your hospitality. He has pictures of you in his luggage. What were you doing in their luggage? You really love him. God help you. Quiet!
0: All right, so I'm really, really curious <laughs> to hear your reaction. We're going to this pretty cold. I think you have a sense of where, where I'm at on this movie, but I have no idea where you, Tasha, or you, Keith, are on this polarizing and much-discussed film, so let's let's have it.
2: i got to say, this is a terrific film, asterisk. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: I think it's a terrific film. I think what it does is, is very interesting, and the, the central allegory is really compelling to think about. I think as with some of other of Aronofsky's film, its cleverness and its ingeniousness is really foregrounded in a way that would be obnoxious if the filmmaking style, if if everything wasn't on point in every, mm-hmm. in every way. I mean, just the style of the film, the performances, the look, the pace, the rhythm. I mean, it, it is remarkably well done. I think a lesser filmmaker, I mean, as, as Tosh likes to say, it is tautology to say this, but in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, it wouldn't be as good of a film. <laughs>
1: um, but I think, I think in the
2: hands of a lesser filmmaker, as clever as the conception of this film is, I think it would be a disastrous film. Whereas I think it's an extremely compelling film. I'm looking forward to revisiting and really looking forward to talking over with everyone. Tasha?
1: That is pretty much exactly where I am. Uh, it's a great film. Asterisk is a terrific way to describe it. <laughs> my experience in the theater watching this film was pretty much the the split that's developed over whether it's a, a good or bad movie, whether it's overly obvious or uh, a terrific piece of filmmaking is the split that developed in my mind as I was watching it, because part of me was sort of taking in the visceral experience of watching this film. I think it's incredibly shot, and I think particularly as things start to disintegrate in the back half of the film there's just a degree to which the filmmaking becomes uh, almost rapturous it's it's amazing Mm. how well he keeps up that story it reminded me of children of men and some of those long take shots where he just coordinates these incredible moments of chaos that last forever and like walk you through a nightmare at the same time i found myself thinking the metaphor here is so obvious and so thudding and so clunky And then I I got out of it and I read Alyssa Wilkinson's piece over at Vox explaining what the clunky metaphor was that I hadn't seen. I had (laughs) seen a different one. And then I talked to uh, Angie Hahn from Mashable, who I met at a screening, and we talked about sort of the over-obviousness of it. And she said, I have had five different people Mm -hmm. tell me the metaphor in this thing is way too obvious. And I asked each one of them what the metaphor was and they told me five different answers.
2: Absolutely
0: correct. That is the exact experience that I had. I went to see this film later than everybody at the festival. So it was actually the last film I saw at the festival, and my two roommates, Noel Murray and Mike D'Angelo, had seen it before me, and I I got in to talk about the film with them, and they both... Had extremely well supported takes on the allegory of the film that were opposed. That uh, Noel had it as what I think Alyssa and, and Aronofsky himself has it as a religious allegory. Mike had it as an allegory about art and the idea, the artistic idea, and so and both of them had all this evidence to back up their points and some counter evidence to diminish the other reading of the film. So it's fascinating to see to see like how you could. Both on the one hand say, "Oh well, it's just so obvious with the the allegory," and then on the other say, it, "Not agree on what the <laughs> allegory actually is." I mean, I, I would side more i guess upon reflection on the religious aspect of it but i i like it's that it can be read in different ways and i just think it is remarkable filmmaking and, and i i will confess that i guess the part of the aronofsky touch is that he annoys you <laughs> you know i mean it's kind of an annoying film <laughs> like even you know even the really good ones requiem for a dream pie i mean how annoying is pie but it's really great <laughs> you know he just works with this style that is ugly and hyper aggressive, and uh, it wears you down, and it and it's not always pleasant to be in the theater watching it happen. But it works, and it it's under I, your skin. It does, and I gotta say, you know, I, even as I say it's unpleasant, I kind of had a ball with this film, particularly mm-hmm. the first half. I mean, the, the second half does go. Haywire. Pfeiffer
2: um, and Harris are so fun. Yes, oh just my god, fun to watch. And that's and, it. And it's like I want to see them as a bickering married couple that also has lots of sex <laughs> in, in other movies.
0: Oh, she's just Pfeiffer in particular is so brilliant in this in this movie. She's so sinister. You know, it's so it's so immediately. You know, she's being. You know, Jennifer Lawrence is, is doing everything she can to be as courteous in, in, you know, and and welcoming a host, even though she doesn't want any of these people in her in her house. And Pfeiffer answers that with just ice and lemonade, spiked lemonade. <laughs> and uh and I just I, I just miss Michelle Pfeiffer is just one of my favorite actresses, and I've I've just missed her for so long, and it's so great to have her back.
1: What are you saying, uh, Pfeiffer, comes into paradise and uh, brings this fruit that she keeps offering that turns out to have negative ramifications? Yeah, yeah.
0: So grand unifying theories hit me.
2: It's the Bible played out from beginning to end, Old Testament and New with a kind of embodiment of the other side of God. I think this is Alyssa's take, right? Bardem is sort of the public-facing uh, masculine God who gets all the credit. And Jennifer Lawrence says the uh, unheralded other side of creation that, without which uh, um, no creation could happen at all.
1: Reading that essay, I resisted it for probably three paragraphs. And then somewhere along the line, I went, oh... They're Cain and Abel. That's yeah. why. They're that's, sh- that's why the sons show up out of nowhere. That's when the That's when, when the film clicked the to me.
2: It's like I kind of thought I knew what it was up to, and then when the two sons they they bicker, they fight. One ends with a mark on his head. I'm like, oh, I know what you're doing, Darren Aronofsky.
1: <laughs> oh, so did you catch uh, it? Like while you were watching it, yeah. you twigged into. the And I, I'm thing? not gonna say
2: I'm super clever because I I, the, I did try to, to avoid uh, as much as possible. I did edit our review by Mike Ryan, who avoided spoilers. We said saying like. It's a film about how Aronofsky does not care for humanity. (laughs) And that kind of helped me click into place, too. But yeah, it was the Cain and Abel thing that that really did it for me.
1: You know, I didn't catch that reading in the theater at all because I was so caught up in the symbolism of Bardem basically being a celebrity. Somebody who creates something and then people come and and progressively want more and more pieces of him. Mm -hmm. And throughout the entire film, Lawrence is trying to push back on that and is trying to create a private space where they can have a relationship and where they can create first a relationship of their own and then a child of their own, but more and more the outside world is coming in and and picking everything apart. And by the midpoint of the movie, uh, she's pregnant and then she has a child and everybody wants to seize on the child. She has created this house, like physically created it with her own hands, and people are breaking in and literally stealing pieces of it because they want pieces of it. And throughout all of that, all I could think of was the way the celebrity press seizes on pretty much from somebody's... Gone up a pant size. Is she pregnant? To the endless coverage of, of flaunting the baby bump, which means going out in public while pregnant. To how many pictures of the baby can we steal, or can we contract for uh, exclusive pictures of the baby? And then there's an endless series of judging how they're how they're holding the baby, how the baby's dressing. Like, are they bringing the baby out in public? They're bad parents. Are they concealing the baby at home? They're bad parents. There's just so much judgment around, and I, I got caught up in all of the interpretations of. Of celebrity life mm-hmm. and losing the right to privacy. I didn't see the biblical aspect of it at all. It's so
2: interesting. I mean, all that's there. I mean, I think all that is very much, you're correctly reading, That that is the texture of the film. But I mean, I think it's going to play as a very different film <laughs> for you if you go watch it a second time.
1: I think it's also going to play as a very different film for people. Like, uh, Keith, we've discussed this before. Like, you and I both grew up in fairly religious households, mm-hmm. fairly Christian, uh, fundamentalist religious households. So we both have like a pretty good grounding in the the step-by-step aspects of the biblical story to somebody who isn't steeped in that background. Like the metaphor is not going to play at all here. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Aronofsky also says it's about climate change and yeah. about people coming in and taking apart, literally taking apart the environment until everything falls apart and making horrible decisions based on selfish reasons until the world it literally disintegrates as mm-hmm. it does in the movie. So, well, you can
0: read, I mean, the house, if you can want to see the house as Mother Earth or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: then, you, one does not negate the the other you can definitely use the biblical allegory as a environmental metaphor
0: yeah and double as a metaphor about celebrity and, and about the Good, artistic and impulse. Artist, people yeah yeah, exactly.
2: yeah. <laughs> so it yeah. can be
1: all of these things the question that i'm still stirring around in my head is whether that makes it a better metaphor or a worse one if it can be all of these things simultaneously I almost want to say that it's too broad. And yet at the same time, it is so very specific in the biblical particulars. It's so very specific in the fame particulars. Our buddy Glenn Weldon tweeted about how, you know, in his opinion, metaphor at this level just turns a movie into a puzzle. And once you've put the puzzle together, it's very uninteresting. That it's just kind of like a one for one correspondence. And I can certainly see that reading, too but I can't get away from the fact that the movie moved me emotionally.
2: Yeah. I mean, I get that. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves and bringing in exterminating angel, but I think part of what makes it so effective is it is, it is, grounded in real emotions and people that play like real characters and if they were just one for one stand-ins for I'm assembled for this it would not work but I these you know Jennifer Lawrence is I mean maybe she can be inexpressive I've never seen her movie and not be moved by her just because she is such an expressive actress and, and just her presence and what she does even when she's not really explicitly doing anything in, in the frame is is usually quite uh, affecting
1: yeah even when she plays roles that are pointedly inexpressive like katniss in the hunger games the way in which she in, is inexpressive is emotionally moving in and of itself
0: yeah i mean i to kind of go back to what glenn said i just i reject that idea just so totally because i think that it is a challenge for a, a puzzle picture to have an emotional Core to it, but I almost feel like the really great ones, the mementos, the exoticas of the world, you know, and Mother, I would include in this as well when those pieces come together, they reveal something more, and you 're moved by what the the picture looks like. you know I think the the implication is that puzzle movies are too worked out or too schematic and have no mystery to them but i don't i don't i really see that as mother the elasticity of this film as as an allegory is to me an unmitigated strength and, and it makes it just a fascinating to watch, fascinating to talk about, to unpack, to try to take pieces of the film that might support your reading of it and hold those up against pieces of the film that might support a, another reading. I mean, this is just a fun film to talk about. I mean, as much hell as it's caused you know, audiences around the United States who gave it an F cinema score, it is. I think it's a lot of fun uh, to, to, to unpack. <laughs> it's that
2: really fun movie in which a baby is eaten. Well, yes.
1: <laughs> but it's, you know, it,
0: it's not that that bad. Baby. I mean,
1: I'm, I am glad that I didn't see the biblical allegory while I was in the theater, that I, I was too focused on the other mm-hmm. allegory because while I knew that nothing good was going to happen to that baby, if I'd seen early on where it was going at the point where she got pregnant, I would have kind of rolled my eyes because I would have known what those story beats were going to be exactly. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad I didn't see the way it was going to play out until I got there. And I think that that is a problem with the puzzle movie is if you twig to the puzzle pieces too early, you know, it might lay at self out for you in a way that sabotages the story itself
0: maybe but boy i just i think the film is just so full of twists and turns and <laughs> good things you just never expect it kind of like it tapers off a little bit in the second act which is the first and second act it's it's crazy enough and that it finds this other gear entirely for the last third i just i think it's kind of a good time with the movies um
1: well the people who gave it a, a cinema <laughs> score of f disagree with they you. they really
0: do but i mean this is one of those movies that that are you know I, i've I wrote an article about this about the movies (laughs) that got movies that that proposing proposing a a, a festival of, of, films that get F cinema scores films like Solaris by. Uh, Soderbergh or Maybe. The Box or, or I
2: like I like The Box
0: or Bug or yeah uh, you know, I think it just has to do with you lost I mean, me at the bug. extreme. There's a lot of extreme aspects of the film films that it, film these films are are tough to take. But mostly they just don't behave. This does not behave like any movie you know you might expect as a as someone who goes to the multiplex on a regular basis. And,
2: and, and I don't get too sidetracked with the whole cinema score thing, but they're also the, all these films have in common is is they are impossible to market and they are also deceptively marketed yeah was, this was sold as a creepy horror film mm-hmm. about Jennifer Lawrence being alone in a house and people show up yeah home invaders uh,
1: it was yeah. sold as a home invader uh, horror that. film it is that mm.
2: it, it is They're, but a it is, is also invaded.
0: it also has connections to the exterminating angel so maybe we should <laughs> get to those we'll be back to talk about the connections between mother and the exterminating angel
2: Lemonade! Oops, oh, careful.
0: Thought you might like some.
2: Yes, thank you. Secret family recipe. Which part? The lemons? How's your hand?
1: Oh. Still stinging. Sorry. It's not like it was your fault. You don't have any painkillers, do you? Are you telling me the truth? I really don't have any. I'm sorry. Okay.
0: Now it's time for connections. When we bring these two films together, talk about all the things they have in common. And I'm just excited that they have so much in common (laughs) because this uh, was not the film I was expecting at all you know we we like to we have to you know when we prepare for episodes of the next picture show we like have to speculate based on the information that we know from from the synopsis from past work through from trailers what these films might suggest so we can kind of get ready for them and, and bat some titles around the exterminating angel was not a title that we <laughs> that we brought up and yet there's a really strong connection between the two particularly in the premise in the first half of mother
1: and that it, it, came up because like Keith weren't you the one that said uh, Aronofsky had specifically cited it as one of his references
2: I was about to say that I just read that in an interview so I don't <laughs> think I don't think it was <laughs> somebody me. somebody yeah. made that point I think Scott made someone it. someone did
0: I, that. I was in that discussion that I had with uh, Mike and Noel after seeing the movie mm-hmm. I, I asked uh, for their opinion and they and they said no 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 you don't want to do plants. you should do Buniel or you should do something like Godard's Weekend
2: yeah mm-hmm. I mean he has been doing a series of interviews and this film has come up as, as a direct inspiration but I try to think we'd be really struggling if we had done Repulsion or a Religious Baby as, as much as I like those films
1: I mean I think we'd be struggling to find the, the kind of one-on-one correspondences that we're about to talk about but to me Repulsion still has a, mm-hmm. a really strong emotional connection sure. to Mother the way it plays out.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, that just descend into madness, that constant assault mm-hmm. uh, that she feels, the, the single setting. I mean, there, there are definitely some connections to that film. And I think you could also make connections to Rosemary's baby in the sense that there is this conspiracy afoot that she's not a part of, that she's not in control of what her husband is doing and what, the guests are doing, and what the hordes of people who eventually descend on the house is doing, and they're all coming together for some purpose that she has no influence or control over, and she doesn't know what it's for. So uh, the Polanski influence is not completely absent, but you know, you just—it's just such a neat one-to-one uh, between mother and the exterminating angel, uh, which both have. I guess the first connection would be an allegory. They both kind of have a big sweeping. Allegory in common.
2: I, I think one is more sweeping than the other, though. I think we're getting sort of the the whole of history with Mother and and possibly. <laughs> to prehistory and post-history in some ways Uh, it's got a really interesting ending where the last shot is of another mother like like here we go here's here's a connection like exterminating angel it has a truly baffling ending
1: well like exterminating angel it has a cyclical ending I mean the the end of mother kind of implies that the house once again burns down which is where the the movie sort of starts is the idea that the house is burned down and then has been rebuilt and it's it's kind of the big bang big crunch cycle the idea that the universe itself is cyclical and then with exterminate angel we kind of get and it's all begun again so i think in both cases you kind of have a, a closed loop that's meant to represent kind of the way the world turns and i think
0: both advance a fairly cynical view of civilization and, oh, sure. and what what happens when people get together in a certain situation and and order breaks down and Humans behave deplorably. Uh, uh, you know whether it's how they treat each other in *The Exterminating Angel* when when they're trapped in this space. and
2: who gets to use the bathroom first? Right, exactly,
0: mm-hmm. exactly. They're they're tackling each other and and are reduced to this sort of savage behavior. Or in *Mother*, where where you have these characters who are taking so much from her, especially, but but just from the house and from and from the baby. Eventually, they're just taking this beautiful thing that has been created and, and they're stripping it down to the rod underneath. You know they're, they're destroying the earth, I guess, if you want to consider it as an environmental metaphor as well.
1: I think in both cases, there's a pretty strong feeling that like one person alone is dignified and civilized and quiet and two people together can build a really important and deep connection. And then by the time you add the third person, it's already too many people. the The more people there are and this could also be considered an environmental message in terms of overpopulation but it could also just be a condemnation of like society as a whole. There's kind of a sense that the more people are added to the scenario, the more chaotic things get, the more things get out of hand, the more people's worst impulses are pushed further and further. And the more if one person acts on an impulse, a destructive impulse or a greedy impulse, it just primes everybody else to, to panic and act on their worst impulses. Yeah, as it's well. like this
0: permission structure that suddenly pops in you know when when people are you know sitting on the (laughs) on the on the unfinished sink or something like that or or and i guess it really starts with you know michelle pfeiffer's character repeatedly going to this room that that jennifer lawrence is telling her not to go into and it just you know as more people go into the house you know they treat it haphazardly they don't they have no standards they have no rules and that's what ends up happening.
2: You're saying the moment where they don't heed uh, the word of the people who own the house and there's a, a tremendous flood? <laughs> is that what you're referring to? There is is there there is a flood in the
0: film. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: yes. Uh, yes, there exactly. is. Well, Strangely. Yeah. And and you know what? Every, when the, the house floods, suddenly everybody leaves it and we're back to our, our two people, like our family unit mm-hmm. again, until people start creeping back in. There doesn't seem to be a moment where many, many animals flock into the house, which I think is a real flaw in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I think Aronofsky needs to recut it.
2: Animals are expensive.
1: <laughs> he
0: discovered that with Noah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I guess Noah. he'd already
1: done his uh, his details. He did
2: two story. Noah movies in a row. Yeah, uh, yeah. Noah scene at least in this.
0: Yeah, one. and I kind of like that Russell Crowe in that movie and Javier Bardem in this movie are playing characters who uh, you know uh, represent in your sunday school class you know pure decency right uh but then uh have this side of just anger and wrath and well no
2: it's complicated even in the bible i mean you think it's drunk his, his children see his shame and not all good for noah but yeah yeah
0: see i only got i only got the sunday school version yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah keep keep reading
0: so this seems like a good time to talk about another connection which is religion which is a obviously a huge part of mother and then maybe an incidental or part or a sliver of the exterminating angel but not um, an insignificant one
2: i think you could go see either of these films as a practicing christian and not be offended that's my controversial statement i think you can see the exterminating angel as a, as a critique of religious hypocrisy and you can see this as a really powerful metaphor for the christian faith and how it gets perverted and misused And misunderstood and maybe sort of a pessimistic or fatalistic take on humanity itself, where it's sort of doomed to always fall short and to destroy, but still see them as as films that aren't necessarily attacking the faith itself.
1: I think you have more faith in the modern American Christian in particular than I do, Hmm. because I I mean, my experience with... Any sort of organized Christianity in cinema is that like the violence alone would outweigh the any sort of like intelligent nuance that 's going on in these stories like i just I see christians that i 've had had contact with both in my personal life and online uh, more recently just I think they would be so offended by the idea if nothing else, the fact that there is no religion in Mother that comes out of out of the child, out of the Christ child. There's only false religion. There's only ever bad messages. But more importantly, it's a it's a gory movie. Well, no, I, I don't I don't know about that. The, the
2: second book that the poet writes, some sort of like New Testament of some kind, <laughs> uh, is very well received. It's just sort of grabbed and claimed by different different parties. time I, I think where you would get in, into sacrilege is the whole idea of Mother to begin with, uh, emphasizing this non patriarchal aspect of creation. But uh, I don't know. I think it's an interesting challenge if you're a person of faith.
1: Yeah. I mean, it does like God in this movie comes across as a a pretty dopey and clueless character. And and at
2: times malevolent at times just kind of thoughtless. Mm-hmm. To you know, maybe never intentionally malevolent, but but certainly so neglectful as to be unintentionally malevolent. It's a really fascinating,
0: oh, vain as well. Yeah, it's oh, really fascinating certainly.
2: characterization. I mean, I I don't know who else could play this other than Javier Bardem, but you kind of need that, that sort of big presence, like you know, handsome but also almost kind of a caricature of masculinity in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's it's perfect cast he has
1: an incredible way of uh being comforting and sinister at the same time of being warm and malicious at, at the same time of, of convincing you that he really cares about her and at the same time he only cares about himself it's it's a pretty remarkable i think all of the performances in this movie <laughs> of, of any significance are really remarkable
0: and, and i i really have to give a shout out to the rather against type casting of kristen Wigg. she's great right <laughs> in this film uh, and the
2: very on-type uh, casting of Stephen McCatty, one of my favorite Canadian character actors as the zealot.
0: This is maybe a point where the roads start to separate. The tone and the style of these two films are pretty much at opposite ends of each other, right? Oh, uh, it's
1: really true.
0: Because Aronofsky's got it going to 11, or maybe he has it going to 10 in the first two-thirds, and then he goes to 11, but there's an a intensity and relentlessness of style uh, and camera movement and these sort of spring-loaded effects that is not at all similar to Buñuel's approach. Uh, but I do actually think if they – you have one little thing in common. I do think that the films are both kind of funny. I mean, I, I think you're not agreeing with me on Mother being funny. But I think there's – Jennifer Lawrence's exasperation in the first half with all this, this absurd situation that's happening that she has no control over, I think that's really funny. And, and like her, and I think Her, it is her played.
2: instinct to be polite is challenged beyond – the breaking point of of huh. anyone else. Uh, yet she never quite gets there. Yeah, until, no, until I, that, I,
0: which I, I yeah. identify with that so much. So in that sense, maybe they do overlap just a tiny bit of having kind of a deadpan, you know, laugh but not out loud type of quality. But in other ways, they're not really similar at all.
1: I, I don't see it at all. I mean, her her manifest desperation almost from moment 1 i found very very affecting and it, like it activated my anxiety uh-huh. it made me just feel very worried for her and I think one of the interesting things about Mother is the way it plays with sympathy around her, because, you know, when they first show up and she's very defensive about it, you can kind of see Bardem's point. Like, you know, it's his home. He he is trying to create something and she's being a, a bit oppressive and a bit hovering. And then as things go bad and he can't see her pain, sympathy switches to her. And then as things get worse and worse, it becomes more and more a feeling of her maybe... Maybe demanding too much out of him, specifically wanting him to shut the world out and have only her. And then as she gets pregnant, it shifts back to her. And it's a back and forth kind of thing. I find uh, the Buñuel film a lot more even keeled in that regard. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think there's ever any question about whose side you're meant to be on in that film. And I don't think it's as complicated. I think you're meant to sympathize maybe a little with some of the people who are suffering more egregiously as a result of what's going on. But I don't think that he does nearly as complicated a thing with kind of switching back and forth with whether... Whether you want the people to be in this situation or not.
2: I think the big contrast to me is Buñuel is so matter of fact. You know, obviously, the, he had a much limit, more limited palette of, of effects available to him, but I also think he was more interested in finding surrealism and just sort of everyday things. Like, the, the creeping hand is never mistakable for anything except for a glove that's being pulled along, and that's fine. I think that makes it even more uncanny. You, you, you know me. I like my clunky uh, analog <laughs> effects. And with Aronofsky, it's so much more of a manipulation of the environment. I I think he says there's more effects in this movie than in in Noah, even though they're a little perhaps a little more disguised, the ability to bend reality, by actually bending reality, it's much more Ar- Aronofsky saying, whereas I think it's more with Bunyau. This detail is out of place. This is not quite right. We've seen this thing twice. There's a bear in here. But it's a, it's, <laughs> Where's it's, this it's, bear coming from? Yeah, it's, it's a much more, you're getting a lot more effect out of just by, by much smaller gestures.
1: Some of those small gestures are just in the, the disintegration, as we've said, of the environment. Like they're both, you know, cloistered stories taking place in a, a single setting. And in both cases, the houses are disintegrating. And in both cases, the houses are disintegrating because of what the people within them are doing. But I think it's an interesting tonal difference that you almost sympathize with the people taking the house apart in an exterminating angel because it's like, in some ways, literal, in some ways, figurative. They're clawing at the walls from the inside trying to get out. Whereas in Mother, you know, the, the fact that people are clawing at the walls, they're clawing at the walls so they can have pieces of it, so they can take it away with them. And it becomes much more like ants dissecting the corpse of an animal. Uh, in a horrible sort of way. Whereas with Buniel, it's it, more like animals shaking the bars of their cages. You, I
0: mean, you can't, yeah, you can't really hold it against them if, they, if they're going to axe through a wall to try to get to water, mm-hmm. which is essential. And you can't really hold it against them that they're breaking up the floorboards and the furniture to start a fire so they can eat. I mean, a lot of that makes sense. But it, with, in Mother, it's like a lot of wanton destruction and carelessness and, and not listening to uh, anything that that poor Jennifer Lawrence says.
1: Although I do wonder like, how actually literal – the inspiration was for Aronofsky of that idea of like the wall breaking open and spraying water out of the pipes I mean that's that's just like a really specific visual image that comes up in both films
0: yeah that's true I really thought it was more broad the connection rather than that so specific yeah, as like a specific incident but hey all
1: things to all people indeed
0: man. another point of comparison or perhaps contrast has to do with the depiction of nightmares on film because as the situation intensifies and both films the the imagery itself becomes a little bit more abstract. But again, the approach is a little bit different. One thing I would point about about Mother now that I think about it is that that fluid camera style where you're just kind of like swishing from one wild image to another in that last third reminded me a little bit about uh, of eternal sunshine and spotless mind about Mm. like whisking through someone's conscious and and seeing certain doors close and other ones open and you're just getting a glimpse of things the camera's just everything is moving so fast and there's like a breathless quality to both of the films that you know that is not at all (laughs) buniel's style Mm. Uh, but it is aronofsky style
1: yeah, but what the what they both have in common, sort of stylistically and conceptually, is this, I, I think they both really capture the idea of dread that comes with nightmares. The idea that certain things are assumed to be true in dreams, and that's the hardest part to explain to uh, someone when you're trying to tell them about a dream is, you know, and my mother was there, but she was also a hyena, and she was also on fire. It's just you, when you're in a dream, that is a natural thing. In both of these cases, I think the films do a really interesting job of capturing that dreamlike feeling of something is terribly wrong, but at the same time, it's, it's normal. And I think one thing that's just really interesting for me in comparing them is that for me with Mother, I finally cottoned on to the idea that it was all kind of a surreal dreamscape, that nothing happening in the movie was necessarily literally real. About the time the blood dripped on the floorboard started turning into this expanding, rotting thing. At that point, I was like, oh, oh, okay, it's all a dream. And then everything that fell out after that seemed natural to me because it was part of a dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it didn't bother me emotionally as much as it might have otherwise and it didn't bother me as much as it bothered all those cinema score people when weird stuff started happening because I'd already yeah. accepted the dream logic. Yeah. For me with the Buniel, when we get the the hand sliding across the floor, that always takes me out of the movie because everything is, as Keith has said several times, so straightforward and, and matter-of-fact and frank. And I'm much more like that variety of absurdism with exterminating Angel than I like the b- disembodied hand sliding across the floor and getting stabbed, which to me is just awesome, random. So great. Why? Why is it great? Why do you like
0: <laughs> it? Because it's a disembodied hand and she's trying to stab it. It's like how, how exciting <laughs> is that? And also and I, I think the difference too is like you can talk about mother as being nightmarish. Whereas Buñuel seems to be interested in how actual nightmares work mm. uh, and how actual he, hallucinations might might work. Um, um, but I,
2: I think even the, the more mundane sections of *Extremely* Angel have the kind of nightmarish quality, too, of them, mm. too, where it's like, oh, this guy is trying to sexually assault this woman. Well, we just reprimand him and move on because this is how we live now. And like, once one of the characters mentioned how bad another character smelled, I started to think about how that room yeah. uh, smell mm-hmm. and what it would be like you know sort of human fluids and rotting sheep and it and, and, uh, yeah. is that, that's a kind of a different kind of nightmare uh, you can't necessarily experience in, in sound and vision but but you can imply it pretty strongly
0: <laughs> I guess I'm gonna guess that Aronofsky would not imply that <laughs> I think you I would think probably get a much more visceral sense of that, sure. that you wouldn't have to think about it that's not the type of type of director that Aronofsky is.
1: I, I just think that mother evokes nightmare really strongly. With that perpetual sense of A, something is going terribly wrong in the other room. I don't know what it is, but I know it's wrong. And B, the way things appear and disappear. It starts fairly early with Pfeiffer's character suddenly being in a place where she wasn't. And there's a, like an ongoing problem of that's not where it was when I last saw it. But by the end, I mean, it's it's a literal walking through a dreamscape where things are perpetually shifting and changing. And and that to me evokes nightmare, I think, more clearly than the dread or just the sense of inescapability that happens in the Buniel movie.
0: Should we do repetition? Let's do it twice. Should we do repetition? Should we do repetition? I ask you this twice. You know, see, you see how it works. I Thank you, God. Johnny, two times. Uh, Johnny, two times. Get the papers. Get the papers. So, so both of these films repeat things more than once. Again, again, they repeat things, and uh, <laughs> but they but they have different approaches. I mean, we've seen this from aronofsky before uh if you look at a film like we for a dream it is all about returning to this same pattern of behavior and he's showing us how they prepare the drugs and shoot up the drugs and this is all done in a pattern basically and and so that's something that that sticks with aronofsky's certain patterns of behavior but that's not really the repetition that we see in exterminating angel which is just strange right mm-hmm. which is just where we're getting two different scenes done twice with two different outcomes and there's no explanation for that whatsoever Uh, so it doesn't not really an insight into human behavior but some other surreal agenda
1: yeah and I still don't really know what to make of that in the Buneau film because there's just this sense of Certain things like, oh, okay, so the toast is given twice, and the first time people respond to it, and the second time people don't, and the man giving the toast is very nonplussed that the second time nobody responds to it, he, he very clearly looks around as though everybody's being terribly rude. They're not listening to me, they're not raising their glasses, they're not preparing <laughs> to clink their glasses, they're instead having conversations among themselves. So, I mean, there's a sense of the breakdown of order, which can feed back into the nightmarishness. There's that sense of, of surreality, but it doesn't seem it doesn't seem nearly as purposeful to me. With the repetition in Mother, that actually bothered me. Probably my least favorite thing about the film was a sense that, for me, after a certain point, I was like, it's a metaphor for fame. It's a metaphor for celebrity. It's a metaphor for the press. It's a metaphor for what you give up when you become famous you don't need to keep hitting the same point over and over. Because when I wasn't seeing it as an unfolding story about the Bible, when I was seeing it as an unfolding story about her and their relationship, it hits the same point over and over. It escalates. It gets bigger and bigger and louder and louder. But that that dynamic of people come into the house, she says go away, they don't go away, they break things, they insult her, she finally gets rid of them, they come back into the house. Like, that mechanic is repeated over and over. And if a mother has a flaw for me it's that the fact that the cycle to me at a certain point kind of becomes okay here come here they come again back into the house here he comes again with his excuses but i
0: almost you almost think of it like a tornado or something or like or like something where you got a lot of different circles going around and then the the biggest circle is is the one that's the circle of creation and death that, Mm -hmm. that the film is Kind of focused on. So, so you got a lot of repetitions that kind of swirl around into a, a much larger one. Um, so to advance kind of a weird visual metaphor for you.
2: I don't try much more to contribute other than to ask about the one bit of repetition in mother that I can't really fit neatly in any sort of metaphor, which is why does she keep drinking that orange liquid? I don't know if we're gonna that, figure that.
0: That was a requiem for a dream thing, if I ever. Yeah, yeah, one. yeah, yeah, yeah. And
2: I don't know if we're gonna figure it out here. And it's, I think apparently it's the one thing that Aronofsky is not. When interviews where he's over discussing, uh, I, I think to my taste, over discussing uh, his own film, mm-hmm. uh, that's one thing he won't really explain. So, I, your theories, and certainly kind of like, I'm gonna throw that out to listeners as well. Any theories they might have on on, on what's going on with that.
1: You know, I have no idea how it would fit into the biblical metaphor or the climate change metaphor. But for me, on a more literal sense or the fame metaphor, like she's a very anxious person. Uh, She is in her own way, uh, very persnickety and very disturbed. And it seems to me like it has a very like gothic taking a lot for my nerves kind (laughs) of feel to it. And there's a point in the movie where she decides not to anymore. And at, at the point where she does, she more fully Inner is the nightmare. I feel, again, it feels kind of like a gothic nightmare story about somebody who has walled themselves away from the world and isn't fully engaging with it. And then when she chooses to, it becomes a repulsion esque nightmare. But I suspect that it would be interesting to go back and watch the movie and look for the specific moments where she drinks the stuff or doesn't drink the stuff and kind of see how that affects the world. And, like, on a metaphorical sense, I have no idea. Nope.
0: Accept the mystery.
1: Yeah, no, no. Translate the mystery. Explain the mystery to us (laughs) listeners.
0: So The Exterminating Angel is available on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray. It is currently streaming on Filmstruck. It's also available for digital rental on Amazon and iTunes. Mother may or may not be in theaters now, given its box office performance, but it will be talked about for a long time. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately?
2: Um, it's not something that's been good for me lately, but I was thinking of the, the various pieces of art that that, that exterminating Angel inspired, or at least it seems to me inspired. And one is the J.G. Ballard novel High Rise. Mm. Uh, which is about people living, uh, you know, in a high rise that, that becomes sort of a, a microcosm for society and, and they leave, but really the focus of their existence is on this. It's a really great book that was turned into Eh, not that great movie a couple of years ago last year right yeah, Ben Wheatley Ben Wheatley uh, oh, no, visually no. striking but kind of doesn't quite work for some reason uh, but a movie that really does work is David Cronenberg's 1975 film Shivers which is also very much inspired by High riser I would guess Exterminating an Angel as well it's his first, if I'm not mistaken, film to receive any kind of commercial release. He'd done a couple of experimental features before then uh, that are that are both pretty interesting. But this was him packaging all his Cronenberg obsessions into, into a horror film. I mean, making a film that could play in, as a horror movie, but also worked as a metaphor for the the dark side of the sexual revolution and and sort of sexual fear. And and it's about these creatures that are both stir sexual desire. And then you know, pass along like a venereal disease, and it's about this very state-of-the-art tower apartment complex where it becomes overrun with this parasite, and everyone goes out of control and sort of like uh, sex zombies. I guess is probably the way to put it. And I think it is a a uh, remarkably assured piece of filmmaking from a very young filmmaker that that's that's raw in ways that he would later refine as he became a more uh stylish filmmaker but it's so much you know from his very anxious uh somewhat uh unusual heart um that that's unmistakably anyone else uh, you know unmistakable as anyone else's film uh, and i i think it's terrific i highly recommend it
0: those early cronenbergs they aren't as refined as the later films but they're also grittier and mm-hmm. uh, and more visceral and and tactile i guess than some of his later work, which is a little chillier.
2: Yeah, and, and like Buñal, he's not, not afraid to just run with a metaphor as, as far as he can take it. Yeah.
0: And, or uh, Aronofsky for that matter.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. or Aronofsky for that matter. You know, I'm still stuck on uh, High Rise, which I agree with you, it doesn't 100% work as a movie, but I think it's got a really uh, some really strong visuals and a really strong uh, central performance from Tom Hilston. Yeah. But I'm also just struck at how good a pairing that also is with The Exterminating Angel, since yeah. it is about a high rise building where suddenly for anything explicable reasons nobody can really leave and the breakdown of order there. And now I'm really sorry that when I saw that movie, I didn't make the connection necessarily. Yeah, I didn't make
2: it till to watching this and thinking about it. But yeah, and Hiddleston is definitely the go to person for that, like sort of slightly removed from humanity protagonist. I mean, it's great casting. And like you said, some great visuals. I just think about the film and just... Annoyed me, I guess is the way to uh, to put it. So I I would say, uh, watch *Exterminating Angel*, read *High Rise*, and then and then watch uh, *Shivers*. That's my recommendation. Nice,
0: very complicated.
2: Scott, how about you? Um,
0: I wanted to recommend a film called *Stronger* uh, by David Gordon Green. You know, David Gordon Green, we always talk about as being a director whose work has been all over the map. He He started so audaciously with. George Washington and all the real girls, but then has done a lot of studio films and things like The Sitter. And, you know, you never know what you're going to get from him. And I approached this film stronger with a little bit of trepidation because it does, in its outline, sound like a pretty blah, inspirational story. It it stars Jake Gyllenhaal as Jeff Bauman, who is a man who lost both of his legs uh, when the bombs exploded at the Boston Marathon. He was uh, there waiting for his on-again, off-again girlfriend, uh, played by Tatiana Maslany, to reach the finish line. And and it's about him kind of coming back and, and, and trying to find his way there. And, and, and what I was surprised is just how brilliantly directed this film is and performed. But one of the things that David Gordon Green does visually is he shoots the film heavily in shallow focus, which makes it so much more intimate and and puts this this very marked distance between the experience that he is having and what he has come to represent for the city of Boston and the whole Boston strong thing which which makes him deeply uncomfortable and is which is too intense for him the film is basically a coming home story it's like a war movie that's the approach that's being t- taken with it and it's about you know, all the struggles and coming back about the physical struggles, the psychological struggles, uh, you know, the the relationship problems, the money problems. It, it, it really just gets down to that very intimate level while also acknowledging that, you know, he had an additional problem of having to represent uh, a city that needed a hero uh, out of this tragic story. So I thought it was a, it's a much more complex film than I expected. It is a uh, much better and more impressive piece of direction from david gory green than i expected so i re- recommend it stronger and jake Hall is terrific as is Messlaney, uh who i i had not seen in her big show which is called orphan black orphan black i've not seen orphan black um she's but great. i hear she's, she's great and she is really outstanding here i mean there's this this movie has my favorite shot single shot of any movie this year i don't, I don't want to give it away but it's 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 another example of that shallow focus uh strategy paying off big time so stronger. that is
1: a strong recommendation i had the chance to see it at tiff and i passed up on yeah. it because in spite of the talent involved it seemed like the, the potential for corniness mm-hmm. and uh uplift overcoming a disability movie was just so strong and,
0: but and I, one other note i'll say this is so much more authentic and and real seeming a portrait of working class boston <laughs> you know <laughs> yellers i guess the, the fighter to me oh wow and, uh, this is this seems like it it's just this is so much more on point and, and that actually is another david gordon green hallmark is incorporating a lot of improvisation and looseness i guess to the talk and you get really excellent supporting performances by unexpected people like miranda richardson and clancy brown and it's not bad i think it's a good movie saying, When's it is, coming is that, out? stronger came out on the 22nd and should be making its way uh to your city if it hasn't already
2: it's not going to inspire a bunch of uh, uh, thickly accident tweets from our old coworker, Matt Singer. Oh, it, it, <laughs> it will. It will. I
0: didn't think about that. I welcome those. Tasha, how about you?
1: Well, I I saw a lot of movies with TIFF, and they broke down relatively neatly into things I enjoyed and that don't have distribution Mm -hmm. yet and are looking for it, and things that I somewhere between didn't like and liked okay, but didn't love, uh, things that are coming up soon. So there wasn't a whole lot of crossover there, except for the one title that I'm going to recommend called uh, The Big Bad Fox and Friends, Mm -hmm. um, which is a a cute little animated movie uh, that is like like certainly nothing else I saw at TIFF amid the the barrage of prestige movies and horror movies I saw this year. It's from Benjamin Renner, is one of the directors of Ernest and Celestine, uh, which is a film I rhapsodized about back at the Dissolve, a really interesting animated film about the friendship between a mouse and a bear, uh, which is made distinctive by the fact that one of them lives in a mouse world that is dedicated to destroying bears, and one of them lives in a giant sized bear world uh, that has its own weird sophisticated civilization. Runner is a an artist and a writer who has his own book and he turned this book into a a French film. It's a series of vignettes about these barnyard animals who don't really have names. They're just rabbit and fox and chicken and pig and it, <laughs> the whole movie is presented as a series of skits, plays that they're putting on in a little theater. So there are little sort of entre-acts uh, where one of the characters comes forward of the curtains and kind of talks about what you just saw and the the characters interact as though they're actors and then the uh, curtains sweep open and we get these strange like whimsical, crazy antic slapdash fable stories about life on the farm. Uh, Ernest and Celestine is a, an incredibly visually rich movie. The backdrops here have a lot of the same look Uh, but the characters are these very simple cartoonish uh, sort of characters not unlike the newspaper comic strip "Pearls Before Swine," but the energy of this movie is so like rambunctious and playful and absurdist and ridiculous. Uh, it was just—it was like a real drink of fresh cold water at TIFF in the middle of all of the other things I saw. Very few things at TIFF made me laugh out loud the way this movie did. It's entirely kid-friendly. It's something that you could watch with small children, um, but it's also pretty adult-friendly because it's—it's it's really ridiculous, uh, fun. Humor humor G Kids has picked it up, the uh, New York organization that seems to grab every interesting bit of European animation. And their usual uh, modus operandi is it'll probably open in New York and L.A. sometime in November, December for a qualifying run at the Oscars. I wouldn't be surprised if it turned up at the Oscars because a lot of G Kids stuff Mm -hmm. does. Uh, And then sometime after that, it'll be available on DVD and streaming. Um, The version I saw was in French with subtitles but they also typically do really really good dubs so uh look for it at the point where it comes out the big bad fox and other tales
0: okay well i'll have to write that one down i missed it at tiff along with so many other films (laughs) it's (laughs) the way they work yeah it really is so many movies so that's it for this week's edition of the next picture show our next episodes come out october 17th and 19th tasha what do we have on tap
1: Okay, so uh, Ridley Scott has been a pretty busy fellow lately with uh, cranking out sequels to his 1979 horror movie Alien, which we discussed on a previous Next Picture show. Um, But that may explain why he hasn't had time to take on the latest iteration of Blade Runner, his 1982 film about a man whose job is hunting down rogue androids. Or maybe the character isn't a man after all. I mean, that's one of the big questions of the original Blade Runner. Who knows whether Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is human or he is yet another android. This debate has raged for decades, even as hotly debated variant cuts of the film have suggested different answers. And Ridley Scott himself has kind of definitively weighed in on the question. So it'll be interesting to see how the long percolating sequel Blade Runner 2049 takes up the question. Uh, Harrison Ford is back as Rick Deckard, but the new film stars Ryan Gosling as a new android hunter looking into a conspiracy. Ridley Scott has stepped down as director, uh, replaced by Denis Villeneuve, director of Arrival, Sicario, and Enemy. So we're planning on looking at both the old and new Blade Runners to see how well they channel the the queasy, paranoid futures of Philip K. Dick. We're going to find out who wore Blade Running better. (laughs) And we're going to find out whether Harrison Ford is planning to continue his streak of killing off his most career-making characters one by one.
0: I'm excited. Just to find out. I also want to really that question about whether he is or isn't an Android. That, that intrigues me, Keith.
2: You hadn't thought about that before?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about it. I'm being sarcastic. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of the exterminating angel, mother, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773 773- Two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at next dot net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Phipps.
2: You can find me at uprocks.com where I'm the uh, editorial director of film and television and occasionally get to do some writing. I wrote a long thing on ET recently, mm. and you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS three thousand.
1: Tasha can find me these days uh, recording with Pop Culture Happy Hour. I just uh, taped, oh my gosh, taped the episodes. fourth show with them. Uh, this one discussing uh, the aftermath of TIFF and what's coming up in the uh, in the Fall Prestige season. Always a lot of fun talking with those yeah. guys. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Tosh Robinson. You can find me uh, writing about film and running the film and TV section over at uh, TheVerge.com. Uh, Scott, where can we find you?
0: Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find a wealth of uh, variety reviews from TIFF12 and all on variety. A lot of flotsam and jetsam, but a few things that I actually liked. And as usual, you can find me at the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, NPR. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscopes Musings blog. And we've got some pretty good stuff going up on the site. So check that out. You can also follow our absent co-host Genevieve on Twitter at at Genevieve Kosky and find her work at the Vox.com culture section. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at NextPicturePod, and via Facebook at facebook.com Show. And If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review, every thumbs up. Helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.